0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sackier. Today I'm joined by Sean Harding, Emeritus Professor of Cardiac Pharmacology at the National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College London, and she was the Director of the Imperial Cardiac Regenerative Medicine Centre. Sean achieved her bachelor's degree in pharmacology and biochemistry from King's College London in 1977 and stayed at that fine institution for her PhD in pharmacology, which she earned four years later. Since then, Shan's primary focus has been cardiac muscle function in the failing heart, which has now led to gene therapy. In fact, she was also the principal scientific investigator for the UK's first trial on myocardial gene therapy. Recently, Shan's interests have expanded somewhat, and she now also focuses on the characterization of cardiomyocytes derived from embryonic stem cells and their functioning cardiac repair, tissue engineering and drug discovery. Shan is a prolific author, having numerous articles published in her name, as well as a book, The Exquisite Machine, great title, which is due to be published in February 2024. Showcasing new scientific developments, this book also explores the link between emotions and heart function, a simply fascinating subject. Uh, We're going to get on to that in a little bit, and I can't wait to read the book when it comes out. Shan was the past president of the European section of the International Society for Heart Research and sat on the board for the British Society for Gene Cell Therapy. She's an elected fellow to the European Society of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the International Society for Heart Research. Shan tells me that she was, or at least used to be, a crack shot with an air rifle. Apparently, her family would practice in her garden after Sunday lunch, and when the fair was in town, they would veritably clean up at the shooting booth and leave laden with cuddly toys. So I think i better be on my best behaviour. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Sean Hardy.
1: Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yes.
0: Lovely to have you. So I love origin stories. So first of all, can you Tell us who or what inspired you to pursue uh, the career in in pharmacology and cardiology?
1: Oh, thank you, Jonathan. Yes, well, um, as you said, I was at King's College London. I was doing pharmacology, and they invited me to, to carry on to do a PhD because it was a pharmacology department there were many different sort of specialities there and i was i was quite drawn to neuro but i could see how crude all the techniques were in the 1970s you know just cutting up a bit of brain area and and bashing it up so but the the heart they used there seemed to be some really useful techniques really tractable techniques and and uh, one of the things i did like about it was that the when you do experiments on heart tissue, the, the results you get are so immediate. You can see the tissue contracting more. You you, you don't have to wait for results to come off a, a, a counter or something like that. But the other, from the other side, from the emotional side, I, I, my father-in-law at that time died suddenly from heart failure. And so I was very drawn to, to, to the, the, the idea about understanding the heart in heart failure.
0: Well, that, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that very often there's a personal element as well as an intellectual element. Mm. So, most of our listeners to this podcast are healthcare professionals, but we have a lot of interested non medical listeners. So, can you talk to us about cardiomyocytes, heart muscle cells? Tell us about the cells. I vaguely remember them from my medical school days many moons ago
1: my favorite cells yes i was one of the first people who was able to sort of tease the the cells out of the heart wall the cardiac muscle cells and they are they're quite chunky cells the cells they you can you can almost see them with the naked eye they're they're like about the the, the length of them they're like long rectangles the length is about the thickness of a human hair and, and the great thing about them is when you put them into a bath uh, an organ bath with with salt solution put some electrical current across they will contract each one like a tiny heart and, and so you can watch them contracting away and and then you can add drugs and and see them respond by, with adrenaline by increasing their rate or increasing their force and I was one of the first people to be able to measure that as well I, I designed the system to, to measure that contraction so Those cells make up the the heart muscle wall. And the very interesting fact, I think, is that they they don't really divide very much. And that's true in the heart as well. So there's not a great deal of turnover of these cells. So you you will actually have, if you live to 80 or 90, about half of the cells in your heart will have been with you from birth, because only about half of them will have, have been replaced so that's amazing when you look at these little cells, they could last for so many years.
0: Yeah, it truly is. I remember when we learned about it from uh, physiology and an anatomical perspective, and obviously from a histology perspective and looking at them under the microscope and learning about the electrophysiology of the heart and Starling's law of the heart and all the clever stuff. They really are pretty pretty darn amazing. Mm-hmm. So Take us on a journey addressing how our knowledge of cardiomyocytes and their function has changed over the years, certainly since, you know, you've been involved.
1: Um, so the, one of the uh, uh, very useful things about having the cells isolated like that is you can uh, use many different techniques to explore them. And in fact, the techniques have grown up around them. So the uh, electrophysiology, the contraction, the fluorescent markers for calcium. You can see the, the flash with, with the, every beat. as so you put the fluorescent markers in the things like the scanning ion conductance microscope, which gives you a kind of topological map uh, and shows you how combined with the fluorescence, how the various molecules group within the cells. Um, and then you can you can use gene editing methods to transfect them, to, to change their function, to explore what the, the, the various genes are doing. One of the first lessons we learned was that in the failing heart, so you've got to say you've got a piece of muscle that's contracting poorly. When you tease out the cells, uh they themselves are also each one is contracting poorly it's not just that you've lost cells it's that the cells that you have are not performing optimally and they've kind of regressed to a fetal phenotype they're contracting slowly and less less vigorously than before and so this is has a real key message that it's possible to modify those cells pharmacologically or by gene editing methods, gene therapy methods. And that those could get you more function out of a failing heart, even if you've lost muscle, say, from a heart attack.
0: It's interesting. It's absolutely fascinating. I mentioned in my introduction one of the topics of your book. And, you know, going back to ancient times, the heart was deemed to be the source of emotion, love, being heartbroken and so on. Now, the image of love is is a heart. Your new book, as I say, the exquisite machine, apparently explores the relationship between emotions and cardiac function, and even details the disorder known as broken heart syndrome. I've actually seen that. I had a patient many many years ago who who died. She was very elderly and very sick, and on the anniversary of her death, her husband was admitted. Couldn't find anything wrong with him. But at the same time his wife died, he died. Now, OK, he was an old man, but, you know, it, it, it always stuck with me. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the heart responds to emotions? And take us through, uh, you know, broken heart syndrome, please.
1: Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Yes, yeah, it It really all stems from... That fight and flight response, which is very, very key in evolution when you're trying to get away from a saber t- toothed tiger or, or whatever, that kick of adrenaline that, that makes the heart contract faster and more strongly is essential to that response. And so, in a way, it, it has some damaging effects, that adrenaline, but the, the imperative to get you out of danger means that it, it's evolved into our makeup as a response and so the sort of stimulus of some fear or danger will activate adrenaline very quickly and this because it goes through the autonomic nervous system it bypasses the the brain the, the conscious brain and so your heart will speed up and what then happens is the heart kind of tells the brain this has happened so it feeds back to the brain to say, look, we're running away from something. Look, we should be frightened. And so, in fact, that that very sensation of your heart speeding up is enough to tell you that you should be frightened. And there are some very sophisticated experiments to show how incredibly rapidly, within the, 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 the space of a heartbeat, that this can happen. And, and so, say, for example, you play... The uh, a, a speeding heart, the recording of a speeding heart to somebody, you can, uh, and you can, t- you tell them this is their heart. That can induce anxiety. it can even induce a panic attack because we're kind of responding to 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 that that physiological effect of the racing heart to understand that we should be anxious. And this is why that many of the relaxation techniques and focus on reducing that heart rate, the vagal stimulation and things of that nature and deep breathing. And so 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 that's that's a key thing. So that's very interesting. The the broken heart syndrome really speaks to what I was mentioning before about the, the damaging effects of adrenaline. Now we know that that this prolonged effect of adrenaline is damaging. That's why we use beta blockers in heart failure. What's happening is the body is sensing your heart is not working fast enough, working strongly enough, and so increases adrenaline. And this will initially be compensatory. But we know from the clinical trials that if you try to boost that at all, then what you get is a lot of arrhythmias and you get some necrosis of the tissue. So that prolonged adrenaline uh, unopposed is damaging to the heart. So... um, Broken heart syndrome is a real thing. It's statistically true that you are more likely to die close to your spouse. Chances are approximately double soon after the death of the spouse, draining away a little, waning a little over six months. But this is a very sort of well-established phenomenon statistically. It's not only bereavement. Bereavement, of course, is one of the strongest Emotional stimuli, but other things too, sort of uh, uh, even things like a surprise birthday party th- that has been shown to provoke this um, broken heart syndrome. Football, I have to say, is a very strong stimulus. There are spikes of cardiac disease around all the major football tournaments, world football tournaments, with about thirty percent increase. This is this is this is very very well known and, and uh, so so even sort of a, what you might think of as pleasant things but with a strong emotional stimulus can cause this broken heart syndrome now uh, one of the things that I was what I wanted to I was interested in was that in fact there are there are two manifestations of broken heart syndrome one is what we would call sudden cardiac death and this is when you have this strong emotional stimulus it produces a ventricular fibrillation and you get the, the uh, cardiac arrest. and if you're not defibrillated, then, then you can have a sudden cardiac death. And it's well known that the strong physical or emotional stimulus can cause uh, sudden cardiac death. Now interestingly, this especially in younger ages, is more a, a male disease, about perhaps uh, four to one, male to female. Now, there's another kind of broken heart syndrome, which I think you, well, you, maybe that you were talking about. I'm not sure. This, this could have been sudden cardiac death with, with the couple you were talking about. But there's a group uh, of mainly postmenopausal women that have another manifestation of this. And here they feel as if they're having a heart attack. They go into hospital, they have all the chest pain, the ECG changes, some of the enzyme changes, slightly differently. But when they are imaged, when they do a left ventricular gram, what you can see now is that there's a kind of an acute paralysis in a way of, of the lower part of the heart, the apex of the heart. And when, when you look at the ventricular gram, it looks as if the, the base is contracting very strongly the apex is not, and can even be dilating, and you get what's called an apical ballooning syndrome. It looks like a, a balloon. It also, it looks like, and it was, it was first shown seen in Japan. It looks like a Japanese octopus pot, and this is why another name for it is Takatsubu syndrome. And so, people that come in with this, often about ninety-seven percent, ninety-five to ninety-seven percent, will recover from a, this really acute heart failure. They'll recover and will co- recover within days and to weeks. There's, they're still thinking that maybe some, there's some residual damage to the heart, but they will basically get up and go home. And I've been very interested in this. And uh, what we've been finding is that in this case, adrenaline switches to a protective mode. It shuts down the heart temporarily but this is just, this stops the arrhythmias and so although you get this acute uh, f- effect it now protects the heart from the worst of the arrhythmias and, and, and people can recover so i think the the difference between the 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 male and the female responses is particularly interesting in this case
0: I'm fascinated by by all of this. What what an an amazing topic. Um, And your comments about football, having been a Tottenham Hotspur supporter for many years, I'm very familiar with the concept of heart in mouth. (laughs) (laughs) But that's absolutely fascinating. I'm really looking forward to reading and learning more about it uh, in, in your book. February 2024 is that correct
1: did I yes that's that's the paperback edition in fact the um the hardback has already come out uh recently and so uh but the paperback cheaper I'd wait till that
0: well <laughs> um let we'll put a link to it in the show notes and I'll be getting a uh, getting myself a copy and reading about it maybe we can have you back on to talk some more once I've actually been a little bit educated. So changing topics, regenerative medicine, it's a catch-all term. Um, There are cells, scaffolds, molecules. Can you explain the work that you've been doing in regenerative medicine, in cardiology? Where are we now and where are we going? What's the promise for the future?
1: So obviously, I was very interested in this when I first saw some human embryonic stem cells in the dish, and they were spontaneously beating. And so they, they, these human embryonic stem cells uh, that, that come from the inner cell mass of the blastocyst can change to any cell type in the body once they're, they're uh, plated in a culture dish. And so they will spontaneously, some of them spontaneously, turn into cardiac muscle cells. And obviously, that, I made the connection that, that when you lose tissue, uh, you, you precipitate heart failure and adult cardiac muscle cells don't regenerate. What we need is some more muscle. So I was very interested in regenerative medicine from that point of view. And that's how I I first got into it. And and it's become quite clear clear now that uh, in terms of the cardiac muscle cells themselves, the stem cells in the body, the sort of natural cells like you might have in your skeletal muscle cells or in your gut, they don't really uh, replace the cardiac muscle cells. They replace many other cells, but they don't don't replace those. And so, those pluripotent ones, the the uh, ones like the human embryonic stem cells, seem to be a very exciting possibility. So, of course, the problem with the embryonic stem cells is that there there are many ethical issues around the destruction of a, a blastocyst, which could have developed to a fetus. For those, and so they weren't acceptable to everybody around the world. Since, and probably stimulated by this, now we can make the pluripotent cells from somatic cells, so blood cells or skin cells. And the prize-winning work of Yamanaka, Shinya Yamanaka, in 2012 showed that you can reprogram somatic cells with just a four factors back to their early origins. And now they become just like the human embryonic stem cells, and they can just become any kind of cell in the body, including cardiac myocytes. And of course, as well as the ethical benefit of this, you've got the, the potential benefit that they are genetically matched to the cells that they were made from. So we could take skin from a person, make that into stem cells, make those into cardiac myocytes, and then those, if we grafted those back, theoretically, we haven't done this yet, theoretically, they would not be rejected in the same way as uh, other other grafts. So um, that was a fantastic opportunity. And like many other people, we, we put efforts into making the cardiomyocytes uh, as a, the preparations, as pure as possible, as efficient as possible, we got to the point where we could make ninety-eight percent of the stem cells into cardiac myocytes in in the laboratory. We could make billions of those, really only limited by the amount of money we had, honestly. Uh, and so we we you know you can see that the bulk, the volume of, of cardiac muscle, is there to to now be used for regenerative medicine.
0: So that's fascinating. Um, Sean. a recent publication that you uh, co-authored discussed engineered heart tissue patches. Talk to us about that, please.
1: So that follows on really very well from what I was just saying. Now we have these large quantities of the cardiac muscle cells. It's really a question of getting them into the heart. The first experiments that were done were injecting them into the animal hearts just to test that out. When we got to the point, uh, not myself, but other people got to the point of injecting large, really clinically relevant quantities of these cells into, say, a pig heart, they they did have a good effect. They, They did start to repair the scar. But... Because they're quite immature cells, what happened was that initially they started to produce uh, rhythmic changes. They started to disrupt the the natural wall of the heart and and produce really quite strong arrhythmias. The stem cells themselves, because they're immature, have a natural pacemaker. So in a, a sense, they were competing with the pacemakers in the heart. So it was having two pacemakers. And that did resolve itself over time. And they integrated and they became mature. But there was this period, a really quite long period, about two months, where there was really full men arrhythmias in the hearts. And so obviously, um, we had to think of a better way to do this. So what we've done, and other people have done, is to make the cells into tissue first. And that's really, really quite easy to do, strangely you put them into a gel uh, with fibrin and then you thrombin to, uh, in a sense, clot that gel and it pushes the cells closer together. And they just very naturally form connections. What, what it's good to do is to put them on some, uh, on some supports so that they've got, you've got a sheet of cells and they're suspended on a support and these supports are bendy. And so, as they the pacemaker fires, they will contract, and they will uh, as they start to connect up, they will bend these posts, and so they will pull the posts towards themselves, and so now you've got a strip of muscle that's kind of exercising itself, and as that happens, they 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 get stronger and stronger and stronger in their contraction.
0: So, um, what promise to, to such patches? I mean, are you? you... Are we thinking like post myocardial infarction? If you've got an aneurysmal ventricle, that sort of thing, or
1: yes, exactly. I think post myocardial infarction is where we've we're, we all started,
0: right. and
1: these cells they have been made in, in sufficient sizes, so something about the palm of your hand, to go over these the the scar, the ventricular scar. They can't be made too thick because although these stem cells quite resistant to hypoxia. You can't make them too thick, otherwise the graft will become hypoxic. But there have been implants done in in Japan and in Germany and and France, I think, too. And there's been some uh, initial data from the Japanese uh, implants which show that they're safe, they're not producing the same kind of arrhythmias, and some indication of efficacy. Whether they're going to be enough to add bulk strength to the muscle in these thin sheets, we don't really know. We think we might have to produce thicker sheets. Uh, whether we need to stimulate the sort of uh, interaction between the two by having a pacemaker say that from the host heart to the patch so to, to that we make sure that they contract at the same time. That's something we've been working on. Anyway, it's, it's an engineering problem now. We have them. And now it's an engineering problem to get them in place and to make them contract in the best way possible to support the failing heart. Yeah,
0: well, it's an exciting uh, an exciting thought um, that we'll have that toolkit in, in, in hopefully near future. Uh, at one point in your career, Sean, you were Special Advisor to the House of Commons Science and Technology Select Committee on Regenerative Medicine. What were some of the work products of that group? I'm, I've am i always had a, a, I don't know, I think it's like a, a patella reflex when anyone mentions government to me. It just makes me want to twitch uncontrollably. Um, maybe like dysfunctional heart muscle. Um, what what did you achieve with, with that group and, and where is that going?
1: Well, one, one thing I was able to do was to bring to the select committee the academics uh, who ha- were on the front line of trying to get these new products, these, these regenerative medicine products. It wasn't just heart, the, there was a lot of work in the eye field. Were, that, that was g- coming on probably possibly the most, uh, then Parkinson's. But to bring the academics who were doing the basic work to the committee to explain what the barriers were for them getting their work into the clinic. And there's this course we know the valley of death, but particularly for, for these new products because they're very different. They're not drugs, they're, they're not surgical devices, they have to be handled in a different way. The legislation, the MHRA, uh, with, with the, what they were trying to do was not was to adapt the drug regulations, which it really didn't work. And, and the companies were very reluctant to get into. Uh, put large amounts of money into this. So there was this sort of disconnect. I think we did some good work. I think that we were listened to and the um, government puts the the uh, regenerative medicine as one of its eight priorities there. They had a, an industry fund, which they tried to put some money into both, you know, funding this through the, the research council. So it is very expensive. And to. Uh, helping the MHRA to adapt and and support these products. Also, they set up some some centres in different NHS hospitals. So the hospitals knew how to handle these new products, which... uh, and, and I, you know, we, we've all seen the success of the CAR T cells, which have very much yes. the same, same problems about you, you've got to take it from the patient, you've got to get it to a lab, you've got to change it, you've got to get it back into the patient, you've got to, to handle live cells, you've got to have a cold chain, all those kind of things to, 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 to try and get the NHS sort of ready to, to accept these products and to know what, what to do with them when they
0: arrived. So uh, sort of digging into some of the specific stem cells, we, we hear a lot about them and assuming that I'm a member of the lay public, pretty much am. I did some work with stem cells many, many years ago, amniotic epithelial cells, absolutely fascinating. They're our future, right? Beyond myocardial damage repair, what, what, are, what are the areas that excite you?
1: Um, one of them is the one real success story has been uses in animal model uh, to replace animal models um, uh, to to un- to understand the so because one, when once they when they are stem cells before they've been changed into the the, uh, the different kinds of uh, sets tissue cells they are very. Oh, very easy, but they are easier to manipulate genetically. So, we did a, a study, for example, where we had patients for, with particular mutation. Uh, we had the IPS, the induced pluripotent stem cells from those. We edited out the gene in the patients. We edited in the gene to related uh, people who were not carriers. And we could show what was related to the mutation and what wasn't related to the mutation. And that's really very interesting, that the path between a mutation and the final disease is not as straightforward as you would think. There there are many different things along the way. And to have these cells now where you can test drugs on them, uh, where you can genetically change them, uh, they're human. uh, the, The companies have taken these up much more enthusiastically than the therapies because you can uh, use those to screen out drugs do a clinical trial in a dish and this saves them money they can take out drugs that would would have a cardiac side effect for example at a very early stage or they can think about repurposing drugs that might have an effect on a specific mutation and so that has been a great success story in uh, with the, the stem cells
0: and another topic in this space gene editing tell us about that what's the current situation and and hope for the future
1: as you as you mentioned I was um, one of the first people involved in a, a gene therapy trial and we were just trying to replace a, a a protein circa that's down regulated in heart failure and seems to cause a lot of the problems in contraction now that was a big struggle it was a big struggle again because to handle these gene therapy products is very different in terms ethical terms in terms of safety very different from 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 a drug so there were lots of Things that we didn't understand that we realised as as we were going along. Also, the heart is very intractable in terms of gene editing because the cells aren't dividing. It's much more difficult to to do that kind of uh, uh, gene uh, editing. But um, I think because of the the advances in understanding how the mutation produces the disease, which is which does which you wouldn't always need gene editing for, uh, the the kind of uh, things we're doing with mRNA, and the kind of uh, sophistication of the CRISPR-Cas system, we're getting to a point where we're looking, to, we could possibly be thinking about editing out cardiac mutations. The British Heart Foundation has just given this £30 million award to a group that's uh, specifically aiming at, at, at producing these kind of techniques to to do uh, to to really address the problems of mutations, cardiac mutations. Cardiac mutations are incredibly common. The, 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 the mutation in titin, which causes about twenty five percent of dilated cardiomyopathy is present in about 1% of the population and that makes though that 1% more vulnerable to a lot of uh, things like chemotherapy alcohol etc pregnancy uh, which which will produce a heart failure whereas a, and somebody without the mutation won't won't be affected so there's and there are many cardiac mutations so that we're right on the edge of being able to start to do something but it's very exciting territory
0: well, as we've talked about all these aspirational um, situations, let's get uh, fanciful for a minute. Now, my final question: If you happened across a magical genie who could grant you three wishes in in healthcare, your area of healthcare, anything, what would those three wishes be?
1: I guess I'm not allowed to just cure every disease, would you know that. that well, yeah, no,
0: you you it's <laughs> no. their wishes. You can do whatever you want.
1: Yes, um, well, if you wanted to be specific, a bit more specific, uh, one thing I would think would be fantastic is that if every uh, uh, record electronic record keeping system in the UK first but then in the world worked to the same parameters and could be completely interchangeable. And we've learned so much from these big data studies on very large populations. If we could harness all the data we're getting in a, in a proper way, that would, be, that would be amazing. Then the, the animal experiments, are they, uh, one thing I would, would, would uh, like to happen with the stem cells is more of the organoid development. And, and to try and replace animal work. I think the EU is trying to, to push that along. I, th- I think we are a bit early for that. But, you know, I think anybody who's had to do animal research would have pre- preferred not to do animal research and to work on bona human cells would have been much pre- more preferable. Yes. And then, again, feeding looking back to what I talked about with the science and technology committee is some organized way to put in the large amounts of money that require are required in some of these technologies to get it over the line into into the clinic without relying on the vagaries of of the commercial world which have all, all their own their own agenda in terms of what their aim is to make money they need to keep going uh, you know, they, they sadly, um, the in terms of some of these patches, for example, one of the pioneers in the in the field, Chuck Murray, was in a company who was was going to take that into the clinic, but that got taken off their list in terms of the the feasibility when they did a the, presumably the feasibility study. The other things were were more tractable. So if we could, if if that kind of money could be made available to produce to get these things over the line and the British of Heart Foundation did amazingly in getting that 30 million together um it, it, for, for this one project and they, they ha- pulled in a lot of money for that but that's the sort of money you need to even get started as an
0: academic yeah well um it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but we definitely want to have you back once I've read <laughs> read your book. Um, and I just want to thank you, Professor Sean Harding, not only for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing your wealth of knowledge, but everything that you've done and doubtless will do to advance uh, the field. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you. It's been ex- such fun to talk to you. Yes, thank you.
0: So, folks... Please join us again next week for yet another fascinating episode of the EMJ podcast. Please like us on social media, tell your friends, check out the archives and subscribe so that you never miss another episode. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackia and I thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please, everyone, stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.